Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Amy Kind, Russell K. Pitzer, Professor of Philosophy and the Director of the Gold Center for Humanistic Studies at Claremont McKenna College. And we're here today to talk about her book, uh, a debate done uh, on what is consciousness between her and, I, I should have asked you this before, is it Dr. Daniel, how do you say his last name? Stoljar. Stoljar. Yeah. Uh, and Dr. Stoljar. Uh, Dr. Kind, it is wonderful I have to have the you today. Oh, beautiful. Yes. Um, so, how did this happen? You know, you, you get together and you're like, you look like someone who'd be fun to write a debate with. Is that you just like, you're, you're, you're at a conference, you go to a bar and get a drink afterwards. Is that what happens? Or. <laughs> um. Well, uh, not exactly, um, but close. No. Uh, so I think I first met Daniel about 20 years ago at um, a summer seminar that was being run that actually was on consciousness. It was on um, consciousness and intentionality. It was in Santa Cruz run by the philosopher David Chalmers. And um, so that's the first time we'd met. But then um, we got to know each other a little bit better when um, about five or six years ago, I spent a research stay during the summer at the Australian National University in Canberra at his invitation. And so I was there for a good chunk of the summer and we talked a fair bit. We weren't really talking about these issues, but we were just talking about all different sorts of things. And then sometime I don't know, in the last few years, the editor for this series, um, Tyron Goldschmidt, uh, got in touch with me and wanted to know if I wanted to write something on consciousness and debating it and was asking me about possible opponents. And I thought of Daniel in part because he has a sort of interesting position on the other side. And I thought it might be fun to get into some of those nuances. And I thought he'd be a good sparring partner. And so he was really excited to sign on. And um, there are, I should say, there are a bunch of debates in this series. So ours is on consciousness, but there are are other ones on free will and on God and all different sorts of questions. Um, but yeah, we're tackling, we're tackling issues concerning consciousness and um, we're excited to see it in print. Yeah. It's really awesome. I, uh, I understand this is the whole kind of uh, point of the debate, but maybe just to kind of center it, what would be a good way of defining consciousness so that like, <laughs> You know, I just thought I'd start with an easy question, right? Yeah, you know. exactly. Well, I feel like, you know, you got me, so you're going to get my definition. And then it's like not really fair to, to Daniel. Um, he would give another one. But no, I'll try and do something sort of theory neutral. So first of all, consciousness is used in a lot of different ways in, in real life and in philosophy. And so sometimes we use um, the notion of, of consciousness or, or being conscious just to refer to being awake or so, you know, like you might, so to speak, 
pass out, you know, and, and go unconscious. Um, uh, so sometimes it's that sort of awake sense. Um, sometimes you might just use it as a synonym for awareness. So you might say like, oh, I wasn't conscious of the, or I wasn't conscious of the fly buzzing around um, until you brought it to my attention, right? Like something like that. I wasn't really aware of it. So we have consciousness in the sense of awakeness, consciousness in the sense of awareness. But there's another sense of consciousness having to do with um, what philosophers often refer to as phenomenal consciousness. And that's what we were really focusing on in the debate. And so phenomenal consciousness is um, often put in terms of the what it's likeness of experience. Um, so you look out and you see a beautiful sunset and there's a certain way that your experience is like to see the reds and the purples and the violets of the rainbow. Oh, sorry, of the sunset, or if you're looking at a rainbow, um, the colors of the rainbow. I got distracted because right now I'm I'm um, hearing sounds emanating from my from one of my dogs. Um, maybe they'll make it <laughs> on screen. But so, you know, there's something it's like to hear your dog snuffling beside you as you um, as you talk uh, and you you have that sort of auditory experience. Um, there's something it's like to be in pain, you know, to have a throbbing pain in your big toe, say, because you just dropped something on your on your big toe and that um, the way that pain, that painfulness of the of the experience, um, that's a conscious experience, emotions other kinds of bodily sensations besides pain. So all different kinds of sensory experiences or something it's like to have, have them. That's what philosophers often refer to as qualitative consciousness or phenomenal consciousness. And we were really focused on that in part because it's in that sense that consciousness gives rise to some really, you know, difficult questions uh, in philosophy of mind. Yeah, and obviously you could see how it would dovetail with a lot of other uh, questions like free will, for instance. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's interesting, even as you talk about that, uh, where you first met at that seminar, it's consciousness and intentionality or consciousness and intention. And that there is that kind of distinction uh, when you talk about the awareness, right? That um, the awareness aspect is more of that intentionality aspect. Is that a, a fair way to think about it? Well, philosophers use, so intentionality is kind of a tricky word. Philosophers use it in, a, in a few different senses. And so sometimes we talk about something being intentional in the sense of you doing it on purpose, right? So I intentionally close the door. Um, I intentionally, um, snubbed someone or I unintentionally snubbed someone. But then there's another sense of intentionality that has to do with representation, and so, and this is a kind of technical definition. So um, when a mental state is intentional in that sense, it is about something. Um, so it has what philosophers refer to as intentional content. So my belief that my dog is on the floor is about my dog. There's a certain content to that belief, right? That, that, that claim. And so that's what we refer to as intentional content. Now, one of the interesting questions, so just go back to the example of the throbbing pain in your, in your big toe after you've dropped something on your big toe. We might ask, um, that pain has a feeling, right? It feels like something. But does that pain, that, that experience, is it also representational in nature? Does it have intentional content? Like, is, it, is, the, is that pain representing bodily damage? Is it representing something else? And that is a question about intentionality um, in the philosopher's sense. And so the seminar that, um, where I first met Daniel 
was on this question about um, conscious, the relationship between the phenomenally conscious aspects of mental states and their intentional content. Um, so is one more primitive than the other or do they go together? Um, are all conscious states intentional or are all intentional states conscious? All of those kinds of questions. But going back to what you were asking about, about free will and agency and all other kinds of things, I mean, you might think that phenomenal consciousness is um, critical to our sense of what makes something like a, um, a, what makes something have like, say, moral status, for example. So you might think like it's fine for you to smush a certain bug because it doesn't feel anything when it gets smushed. Right? Um, it doesn't experience pain. Um, and so you might think that it's only creatures who have those kinds of conscious experiences that get counted in our moral calculus. Um, there are other views, not, I mean, yes, you yes. might think that other creatures get counted as well. So you might think that, for example, trees don't feel pain, but they should get counted in the moral calculus. Um, interesting questions about the consciousness of plants that some people in philosophy have been taking up lately, but I'm not, I'm not, um, yeah. <laughs> who, who is prepared to talk about that. But in any case, uh, consciousness, I think relates to certain other, all different sorts of issues. And one fundamental one is it does seem to be at least one important factor in our moral calculus about other beings. So, uh, I mean, take a sort of topical example, um, uh, like uh, an AI program, you know, like, or, or uh, like take chat GPT or take, I don't know, any, any one of these um, AI programs that are running. And we might, I mean, it's interesting to ask it if it's conscious. And, you know, there have been um, claims about, I think it was the Google program, right? The Google engineer claimed that that, uh, what was it called? Lambda was conscious. But in any case, setting aside what the program itself claims, you know, we might think, well, shutting off a, shutting off a chat bot is not the same thing as shutting off a person, right? Um, and it's in part because the chat bot for however intelligent it is and however much its states might have represent, representational contents, um, nonetheless, it doesn't have experience. Well, if you think that these current sets of chatbots, as great as they are, don't have experiences, you might think that that is one explanation for why they don't get the same consideration as um, a biological entity like you and me might get. So consciousness matters, I guess, is the, yes. is the point. Yeah, a lot of ethical questions as well. Um... And so you represent uh, kind of the dualism side of this debate, yes, and uh, Dr. Stoljar uh, represents it, it. So you said he has a kind of an interesting position. It, is Rossellian monism is that kind of what you found to be really interesting on his part? Yeah. So let me set the stage a little bit. So um, if I if I can, um, yeah, so for the, sure. So the big divide on these issues is between. Um, dualist positions on the one hand and physicalist positions on the other hand. So a dualist position, it, well, it goes back really to the beginning of philosophy. Um, and certainly it's a position that might've been associated with Plato. Descartes is often considered to be the father of dualism. But the idea is that in order to account for the world, we need to posit two fundamentally different kinds of things, Descartes said. So we need to posit 
you know, mental things like minds and we need to posit physical things like bodies. And so the, and so likewise for consciousness, right, we can't just explain it in terms of atoms and quarks and all those fundamental physical building blocks. We can't just explain consciousness in terms of the brain. That's not to say that consciousness has nothing to do with the brain, but it is to say that um, there's something over and above the brain uh, uh, with respect to consciousness. So that's the dualist side. The physicalist side traditionally has been sort of that um, mental states reduce to physical states. So mental states like conscious states are just states of the brain. Um, all we need is the brain, nothing else, brain and body. Um, so physicalist positions tend to be monistic positions in that they only posit one kind of thing, namely physical things, whereas dualist positions posit two kinds of things, right? Mental things and physical things. Okay, so then um, one of the things that's interesting, I think, about the debate that Daniel and I are having is that um, the sort of traditional physicalist picture is a very reductive picture. So it just treats the mental states as physical, the conscious states as physical states. So that conscious state um, of experiencing, you know, the taste of a chocolate sundae, that is just the firing of certain neurons in the brain. Um, or that conscious state of feeling that throbbing pain in your toe, it's just, again, just the firing of, of certain neurons. The typical uh, philosophers tend to, to use the placeholder C-fiber firings when they're talking about pain. It's not as if anyone thinks that pain is literally identical to these C-fiber firings, but it's just a nice little um, shorthand way of explaining what that traditional physicalist position is. Daniel's position is not really a reductive position. So, um, so he offers, and you know, really I'm better positioned to talk about my views than his, but <laughs> he um, offers, well, I guess the, at the core of his view is a kind of ignorance hypothesis. And so he thinks that there are a lot of facts still about which we're ignorant and we shouldn't draw these metaphysical conclusions on the basis of ignorance. And so the fact that we don't know how the brain gives rise to consciousness is, does, should not lead us to conclude that it does not. And his, th there are various um, possibilities, right, for explanations that we haven't happened upon yet. And ultimately, a kind of Russellian monist position, which goes back to Bertrand Russell, is the idea that there are these sort of basic building blocks of the universe, um, like, say, quarks or, or particles that have mass. Some of the fundamental things are mass and charge, and um, those underlie, you know, all the physical stuff in the universe. And you might also find at this fundamental level of reality. In, alongside mass and charge, we might also find these, I don't know, some kind of like proto-conscious properties or conscious properties and just like, like mass and charge and so on bubble up to create macro level entities. These like phenomenal properties at the fundamental level might bubble up to produce the full blown consciousness that you and I experience. Um, but the... Uh, but that's not 
that's not what the typical physicalist says. Um, the typical physicalist is just sort of reducing. They're, they're sort of putting their bet on a, on a neuroscientific reduction, right? That's the typical physicalist position. Well, and I, it's been about 10 years before I, uh, since I studied this. But when I studied it, one of the main uh, movements that are more popular uh, conceptions of this at the time was epiphenomenalism, which was uh -huh. that all of the all of conscious states are really there is no agency to it. It's actually just following what our body's already doing. And we think we're actually doing something when really it's just and that, that's just I think it, that was really helpful for me to understand um, not ne even, you know, the question of true or false. It's definitely a strange notion to the average person. Like it feels very not common sense when you talk about that sort of, uh, I would say, the further along the lines of physicalism, that kind of like, that's super reductionistic, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, typically, introspectively, it seems like our mental thoughts and desires and so on play some sort of causal role. So you just picked up your, your glass and <laughs> drink from it. And we might use that as an example of like, you had the desire for a drink of water or whatever's in your class. Um, you had a, a desire. <laughs> it was for water. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm just, didn't want to make any assumptions there. Um, so you had a desire for some water. And so you picked up your glass and we think that the desire played a causal role, right? In that action, it led to the action. And the epiphenomenalist says that the mental state doesn't play roles. So it's, so basically one reason, and this is a kind of challenge for the dualist, the challenge for the dualist is how, let's suppose we have these mental states on the one hand or a conscious state. So take a conscious state like my pain in my toe. And typically we might think that that, that conscious state, like one of the reasons that I'm hopping around is because I'm feeling this you know, pain. Right. One of the reasons I'm cursing is because I'm feeling this pain. So it seems like that qualitative experience, that phenomenal experience, that conscious experience is playing a causal role. OK, well, so on the one hand, we have that like pain. Let's just call it like the, the painfulness of that experience. Right. That's playing a causal role. But on the other hand, we know it looks like from physics that um, every motion can be explained completely in physical terms, right? So like, oh, well, your toe contracted, you know, and that was some muscle, which leads to this, which leads to this. And it looks like we have a complete physical explanation. So the question for the dualist is where does mental causation come in, right? So if we have this complete explanation in physical terms, right, we can explain every physical action in physical terms, then it looks like the mental, those mental causes are either completely superfluous, right? Like they're epiphenomenal. They don't play a causal role. They're not really mental causes after all. Or they must really just be the same thing as those physical causes, right? Like they must be identical to them. And the question is how we could get mentality involved in the causal picture of our actions if we're a dualist. Um, so that it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. Yeah, the... Uh, uh example and i think i was listening to john searle on it um this is a long time ago now but that uh it's like uh the foam on top of a wave right like the wave is doing all the work and then yeah. you're 
you just have this mental <laughs> uh just like kind of mental froth thought, going yeah. on yes yeah, yeah, yeah. And no right I, I mean i often so so that's a nice analogy um i often think of it as like sparkles right like if you know <laughs> you have like you that. have these brain states doing all the work and then there are these there's this little like sparkle on top of it and the sparkle like what is it doing <laughs> but um I mean, I think there are other ways that the that the dualist can, you know, account for these things and can have an answer. Um, but the the stuff about mental causation is definitely a challenge for the dualist, whether it comes to conscious states or other kinds of states. Definitely. So, I, there is one question I want to make sure we get to today because I, I found this really fascinating: is that a lot of times the dualist conception is argued from a religious standpoint, but you make a, a uh, a big part of this is that there is no, uh, that you're, you're arguing dualism from a purely philosophical, if I can even, you know, I, the word purely is, yeah, <laughs> the word purely is, is dangerous, but, uh, from a philosophical, not a spiritual level. Can you explain how, uh, you've created that distinction? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, um, historically the roots of dualism lie in, well, it's historical roots are lie in, in some kind of religious conception, right? And so a lot of people associate dualism with a certain kind of religious conviction, right? So you might think that um, if you want to believe that, that, that if you believe in um, certain kinds of religious doctrines, like about immortality or um, reincarnation or other kinds of things, you must be able to separate like a soul from a body, right? Like if, if the body dies and the soul lives on, like if you believe in that kind of religious doctrine, then it looks like you're committing, you're committed to a dualist picture. Um, and so there has been a long historical association between dualism and religion. And in fact, when Descartes argues for dualism, um, basically his argument relies in part on the fact that God has the power to separate mind and body. Like, even though they exist together in you, right, God has the power to separate them. So Descartes' own conception of dualism relied on God. Uh, so it, it definitely had that um, religious aspect. But I want, in my own work, um, I'm coming at dualism from a secular standpoint. So, I mean, you were saying purely philosophical but I guess I would just put it in terms of secularity or being um, it's a secular position. So dualism gets kind of a bad rap. It's like in, 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 contempor in contemporary society, contemporary philosophical society, in the sense that like saying that you believe in a non-physical mind is like saying you believe in ghosts. Right. Um, like you must have to believe in spooky stuff. Right. Like, oh, first you're talking about the mind and next you're going to be talking about ghosts. Um, and I don't really think that we have to be talking about religion and I don't really think that we have to be talking about ghosts. I think that um, we can give a dualist view that is perfectly compatible with what we know from science and with our naturalistic conception of the world. And so I'm trying to separate dualism from any kind of religious connotation or from any kind of spooky connotation and just argue for it on its own rights. And that's not to say that you can't give 
other kinds of arguments coming out of religion. I think you can. And you might be able to use certain religious commitments to argue for dualism, but that's not where my arguments are coming. So I basically want to say like, look, whatever your religious convictions are, you, um, here are some arguments that uh, support, support a dualist view. So. Yeah. And, and since I mentioned epiphenomenalism, which I think most people uh, uh, who don't study philosophy would balk at, I think it's useful to talk about, I mean, you talk about Descartes being the father of dualism, and when you talk about inserting into the causation chain, you know, there's, of course, the kind of infamous, he's like, well, it has to be the pineal gland in the middle of the brain. Cause that's the only the one, you know, and so that's where like, it's either ghosts or you're like looking for that anchor point in the body for the, you know, and so um, I, I like establishing the extremes and the, and the, the, the missteps, you know what I mean? Um, not that, well, I'm going to get in trouble with epiphenomenalists, but uh, <laughs> I don't mind. Um, but uh, I think that's, you know, um, and I, I think it's been very helpful for me. I was actually reading an origin um, uh, on first principles. And one thing that uh, became very clear, you know, I, I grew up religious. Uh, I'm still religious the way I said that. But the um, I, I very much felt that Cartesian dualism. And then to read the way that like the early church fathers talked about the soul as perception and movement is vastly different from Descartes' own. And it honestly feels much closer to what uh, I think you uh, are talking about. It's not like, it, do, it doesn't require God to, you know, separate them, you know, himself, if that makes sense. So, um, so how do you argue for this secular dualism? Yeah, well, there are a few different ways. Um, so I guess, uh, a few things. So first of all, I actually think a lot of us have dualist inclinations. Like I think it might be the natural view. And again, this is completely meant to be completely separate from religion. So, I mean, if you go to, um, let's say you, you, you go watch a movie like Freaky Friday, right? And you see the mom and the daughter, <laughs> well, you know, in the movie, the mom is depicted as having after, depending on which version you watch, I think in at least one of them, it has to do with eating a fortune cookie or something like that. Um, I think one, it's like they smash, but um, the idea is like, we can make sense of the idea of the mom's consciousness in the teenage body and the teenage consciousness in the mom's body. And so that seems to, and, and it's not as if the brains have moved, right? Like right, the teenage right. brain is still in the teenage body and the middle-aged brain is still in the middle-aged body, but somehow the consciousness, consciousnesses have moved. And even if you don't think like that, that's something that can happen. Like you're not running out to buy fortune cookies so that you can swap, you know, with your, with your mom, even if you don't think it's something that is going to happen in your ordinary life, Insofar as you, you sort of can make sense of that as a conceptual possibility, it seems like something, it's, it seems um, conceptually possible that the mind could come apart from the brain, right? That your consciousness could come apart from your brain. Well, I think that is a, is a suggestion of a dualist inclination. Um, I think a lot of times, uh, another, another example I like to give is... Um, during the pandemic, I started doing these workout videos and um, 
especially during the pandemic, there were these um, terrible, I live in Southern California and there were these terrible fires. So we couldn't even like get outside. You know, the one thing you could do during the pandemic was like take a walk outside, right? And then we, the air quality was so bad, we couldn't do that. So I was um, doing these workout videos and I'm sure it's not just the particular videos that I was doing, but um, a lot of times the exercise instructor, so certainly the exercise instructor of, of this set of, of videos was constantly talking about like, it's, you know, it's not about your body, like your body, it's, it's all in the mind. It's, all, you know, it's all <laughs> in the mind, right? Like now we've reached the part of the workout where it's really got to be mind over matter and, and so on. And, you know, there's, there's like lots of that all the time. And I'm every time I'm exercising, I'm like, yeah, I'm exercising with a duelist because they're <laughs> just constantly talking about, you know, how um, it's all up to you and it's all up to your mind. And that idea too, right. That there's this, this mind that, that it, that it, that it's not a bodily thing. It's not a muscle thing, but that it's something else. That's also a dualist inclination. So the point is, I think the point is, and none of this is an argument yet, but the point is that I think dualism is a very natural position. Um, I think there's uh, this, I, there's this phrase that um, I heard, I've heard the psychologist Paul Bloom use that, say, that says we're natural born dualists. Um, and it is, I think, very natural to think like, oh, well, me, my consciousness, who I am, that is not just this brain process going. Okay, so, I mean, of course, there are also natural views about science, right? And, and that's where the clash comes from, because on the one hand, we don't think there are things like ghosts, right? Like, so we think that we live in a world that can be naturalistically explained. But that yet, on the other hand, we do think like, oh, when it comes to exercise, it's mind over matter. Or we do think like, yeah, like in these, all these conceptual possibilities in movies, like you can switch consciousnesses, or you can upload your consciousness to the machine. Um, all of those kinds of possibilities suggest some kind of dualist inclinations. Okay, so that's just to like warm folks up. But there have been some pretty standard um, thought experiments in philosophy, and I rely on them in my, in, in my book, um, in my part of the debate. But so one thought experiment that's famous, and that was originally postulated by Frank Jackson, who wrote the forward, the forward to our book, a uh, very generous forward from, from Frank Jackson. But so he put forward the thought experiment of... Um, Mary in the black and white room. And the way the thought experiment goes is you imagine Mary being a color scientist and she is, philosophers always like entrap people in rooms or do other things like that but in their <laughs> thought experiments. But anyway, Mary is a color scientist who has spent her entire life in a black and white room. She's never had any experience as a color. So, you know, imagine it all the way you have to, like she's wearing gloves and there are no mirrored surfaces, right? And so on. Okay, now inside the room, we give her all the science, black and white science textbooks there are, and we let her watch black and white lectures on, t on TV or on her computer. And so she has learned, she, I mean, she doesn't have anything else to do in the room. She has completely mastered color science, right? She knows everything there is to know about colors. And she knows everything that that all of the, that the physical science can tell her about co colors. So we can say she's mastered the physical story. 
But now, having mastered the physical story and knowing all of these physical facts about color, let's imagine that Mary is, for the first time, released from the room. And for the first time, she encounters a ripe tomato. And so she has the experience of red. Now, she knows everything, everything there is to know about the physical story of red, right? That's what she learned inside a room. But the intuition that a lot of people have when you ask, well, like, what happens when Mary sees that red tomato for the first time? The intuition that a lot of people have is that Mary will have, I put it in terms of a kind of aha moment, right? Like Mary says, aha, that's what seeing red is like, right? Like, yeah, I knew all these facts, but now I've learned something. And so the fact that, if it is a fact, the fact that Mary or any color scientist would learn something upon seeing color for the first time even if they knew the entire physical story about color, that suggests that there's more to color experience than the entire physical story, right? Something more than that. And so that points us towards a dualist position. So that's one thought experiment. Um, another way, and notice that doesn't say anything about God, that doesn't say anything about spirituality, right? Completely secular argument. Another kind of argument that philosophers use Okay, so Mary's just an ordinary person. This next one gets a little wackier, but it's a thought experiment that comes from um, David Chalmers. Um, and uh, David Chalmers postulates the, the possibility of these creatures that he calls philosophical zombies. Now, the philosophical zombies are not quite like the zombies that, you know, want to eat your brains. Uh, not like the zombies of horror movies. So the philosophical zombie is... Just like, so let's talk about my zombie twin. So zombie Amy is just like Amy, just like me, right? Micro, down to the microphysical level, just like me. But now here's the twist. Even though um, my zombie twin has the, the exact same microphysical composition as I do, zombie Amy does not have any phenomenal experiences. So now when zombie Amy drops... Um, whatever I dropped on my toe, right? Um, a book. When zombie Amy drops a book on her toe, zombie Amy will say, ouch, right? And will say that hurts and will hop around and do all those things. But for zombie Amy, it's all dark inside. Zombie Amy isn't having any conscious experience. Whereas when I drop the book on my foot and I say, ouch, right? There's that pain behind those words. It's not all dark inside for me. So zombie Amy and me, my zombie twin and I are completely microphysically identical, but yet it seems like there can be a difference between us. Namely, I have conscious experiences, my zombie twin does not. And so that suggests that conscious experiences must be something over and above the physical, right? Because we're exactly the same. We're physical duplicates of one another, but we differ with respect to our conscious experiences. So again, now zombies get a little, you know, it's a little hard to conceive of them and, and so on. Are they, are they really possible? Are they really conceivable? I mean, these are fraught questions that philosophers have a lot to say about. But again, this is a completely secular argument. It doesn't rely on anything having to do with God. Just if you can conceive of a zombie, that is a creature who's microphysically identical to you, but who lacks any kind of phenomenal consciousness, then that suggests that consciousness, that that kind of creature is possible in some sense of possible, at least conceptually possible. And that suggests that consciousness must be something over and above those physical properties, must be something over and above the brain. And so that's another way that you might try to argue for 
for dualism. So, um, yeah, I'll stop there. That yeah, stop. well, I, um, the color scientist one is 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 wacky. But I think, and this is probably why most people are naturally, if they don't think about it, dualist, is when you, you know, you could talk about the qualitative state of color and coming to understand that. But I think we've all um, have this understanding of the first time we experience the loss of a loved one, right? And talking to someone, especially, you know, generally children who have never experienced that and understanding that, that there is a very much a, a qualitative difference that happens um, no matter how much you study death, it's very different from encountering it yeah. uh, with with a loved one, right? And so, like this is this isn't just like uh, you can sharpen it with this thought experiment, but this is something that happens um, in a way that I don't know that the philosophical zombie. <laughs> I don't know if that actually ever happens, but we know that the color scientist one I think actually happens in real life on the regular. If that makes yeah. sense, yeah, right. So I mean, you might. You might know that a death is imminent um, for your loved one, and so you do a lot of reading about death and exactly what it involves, and, and you do a lot of reading about the kinds of experiences that people have, and yet it's not until you have that experience yourself that you feel like you understand what it's like. Like, there's something that was missing no matter how much you read. I think that's right. In terms of philosophical zombies, let me um, just bring it down to earth a tiny bit. Um so, you know, we're, we're doing all these uh, advances in AI. And yeah. so maybe we could build an AI duplicate of you, PJ, right? And so we have our, our PJ bot. And you might think that the PJ bot can, like, you know, nod and conduct an interview and reach for the water glass and do all of those things. But maybe you don't think that the PJ bot is actually having, like, you know, these conscious experiences, you know, isn't isn't enjoying the, the taste of the water, isn't, you know, feeling the water um, glide down its throat and so on. And so, although I, it's true that the idea of a philosophical zombie is a little bit out there, I mean, the AI bot isn't necessarily going to be physically identical to you. Nonetheless, I think we can get the idea of what zombiehood would be be from thinking about a kind of AI bot. I like zombiehood. I, I'm gonna steal that and use that in my vocabulary now. Okay. The um, the as you talk like so in a lot of ways it's an answer to the Turing test, right? Like for it, it would take a lot to make a PJ bot, but not to make a PJ chat bot, right? Something that would be yeah. indistinguishable okay. in sending texts back and forth. That's right. So so maybe we think that there could be a PJ bot who could do a really convincing job of passing the Turing test, but would it really be, so it would be a PJ chat bot, but would it really be like PJ in the sense of like feeling, you know, what you're feeling? And I think a lot of people think like, no, um, uh, that's, and going back to what I said earlier, that's why we think it's okay to turn off these bots, right? Or, or, to recycle them. And, and, um, I mean, they're interesting questions. Gosh, I don't even know if I want to go down this road. Cause I really, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't, um, uh, read a lot about it, but you know, there are these, I think it's called replica, but there are these, um, you know, romance or sex bots and all different or, or romantic partner bots. I, again, I don't know that much about them, but I think that, um, 
you know, one of the reasons that we feel squeamish about certain kinds of things in that area is that we don't think that the bots really have feelings, um, you know, and, and so when we hear that someone's, you know, involved with a bot or something like that, it's like, you know, what's what exactly is going on? Yeah. Uh, so with the PJ chat bot, like if you wrote, if you're typing to it and you said, PJ's an idiot and I hate him, you know, or I hate you. And it responds angrily. We don't actually think it's experiencing anger exactly. in the same way that, yeah. And in the same way that makes us uncomfortable, the romance bot, because it's like you're it'd be very similar to looking into a like a mirror, you know, like just a, a more complicated mirror and just being like, I'm in love with myself because I'm I'm creating without any interference the the these return stimuli. I don't anyways. But yeah. No, right. Like, so if, if insofar as you can make sense of the idea of the bot responding angrily without feeling anger, that again, is that is the sort of way into thinking about zombiehood. Right. I'm sorry. I'm really take, I just, that that's a really fun word to say and I need to, I need to move on. That's I love it. Cool. No, it's awesome. Um, so that's kind of your side of things and you know, uh, I think I, I trust your professionalism and sense of fair play enough to ask. So, what is Rossilian monism as as kind of an uh, an alternative to this? Yeah. So, um, if you if you think about um, those thought experiments, I'm so I, look. I'm not gonna. I, I won't give you you know like the entire story, but. Um, I can give you a little bit about the ignorance aspect of um, of Daniel's position and um, the the fact that he basically is going to sort of um, you know defend the claim. So I was trying to find some of his wording here, um, but so he is. Uh, taking what he calls an epistemic approach to the problem of consciousness. And so take, I don't know, take um, uh, either of the thought experiments that I just offered. In both cases, we're making certain judgments about what is and what is not conceivable and making judgments on the basis of that about what is possible. And Notice that the claim about conceivability, like can we really conceive of Mary or can we really conceive of the zombie, that is a claim you might think about us and about like what we can and cannot conceive. And so someone like Daniel thinks that that's not a very good basis for developing a theory of consciousness. So he thinks that um, the fact that we're ignorant of how Mary could understand redness inside her black and white room right or or how um consciousness resides in um how consciousness how consciousness does not come apart from the brain the fact that we cannot conceive of certain things we shouldn't make metaphysical claims on the basis of those epistemic claims and so he is offering a kind of ignorance hypothesis of sorts and he he thinks that um, uh, 
again, the state of the science is such that there's just a lot more to learn, right? And we need to um, sort of see how it's all going to play out. And so his bet, one way to put it is that his bet is on science. Um, Yeah, and so we feel like we have all this evidence, and he's saying that evidence will eventually be explained through science, and that really that evidence is just ignorance. Is that one way? Yeah, he's saying it only seems like evidence because we're ignorant of basic scientific facts. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that may. I mean, uh, I understand where he's coming from, and that's uh, that definitely that makes a lot of sense. Um, So the go ahead. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Just I was thinking I should be a. I should help him out a tiny bit here. So, you know, it'd be like someone in, um, you know, in an ancient society, um, not knowing anything about, you know, chemical compositions of elements, right? And um, the fact that they can't conceive of water as being H2O because they don't even know what hydrogen and oxygen are, doesn't really tell you anything about the nature of water, right? Like, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't judge make judgments about the nature of water on the basis of their ignorance about chemical compositions. Yeah. Would it be, uh, uh, as another example, um, and I apologize for bringing the sacred into it. Cause I know we're, we're trying to keep the secular, but like, for instance, when you see, uh, like lightning and you're experiencing lightning and it's like, can you explain the lightning? And it's like, no, it's like, well, then it must be the gods. And it's like, well, that no, we if we if we bet on science, it will come around. Um, yeah, no, that's another right. So, so if we think of lightning and thunder as like the wrath of the gods, right? Um, that would be another explanation. That seems like oh well, eventually we get to a scientific explanation, right? And it turns out that lightning is electrical discharge, right? And we don't and we don't need um, a theistic explanation for it. And so right now, it might seem like we're as ignorant with respect to consciousness as people in those um, uh, other societies were with respect to the nature of lightning. So yeah, that would be another example. Um, and I want to be conscious of your time. Uh, I should not, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I'll be respectful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to be aware of your time. No. Um, <laughs> but uh uh, I often find, especially like, um, you know, you see modern day kind of Platonists um, in the way that they approach this. Uh, you, you both uh, mentioned mathematics. Um, how uh, is like, how can mathematics help us understand? And I think part of that is helpful for me, too, because that was really important to Descartes as he was in his own philosophy. So as we talk about like the dualist side of it, how does our understanding of mathematics help illustrate this discussion? Yeah, cool. Um, So I actually think it helps me. I'll explain why. Um, But so most of us believe in numbers. You know, we take classes in algebra and calculus and whatever else. I mean, I haven't taken calculus in a long time or algebra for that matter. But, you know, I I think that things like the number three exists, you know, the number five exists and so on. I think, I, you know, I have... um, uh, when when I say things like I have two dogs, right? It's like, well, there's one and there's two, and there's some reality to the fact that there are two of them. Um, the two-ness, zombiehood and two-ness will coin a lot of dogs. Yes, today. I like it. <laughs> um, so uh, what is the number two? Well, the number two is not something that I can pick up and put in my pocket. 
Um, even if I, let's do it with rocks. Like say I have, let's talk about the number five just to have more rocks. Um, say I have five rocks, right? Well, it's not as if, um, if I were to, you know, grind up those rocks, uh, the number five goes out of existence, right? Like the, the, the number five is something over and above those five rocks. So the number five doesn't seem like anything that's physical. It doesn't seem like it's completely explicable in physical terms. It can manifest, you know, in all sorts of different ways, but the number, but whatever the number five is, it doesn't seem to be a physical thing. And so yet there's nothing spooky about the number five. Like if you told someone you believed in numbers, they're not going to be like, oh, well, you must also believe in ghosts, right? That's super spooky, right? Or like, oh, next, you know, next thing, like who knows what the next crazy thing they'll be saying, you know, after believing in numbers. So I want to use things like numbers as analogies for um, our belief in the non-physicality of consciousness, right? Like, so just so we don't think there's anything spooky about believing in the number five, I don't think we should think there's anything spooky about believing in non-physical consciousness. It almost reminds me of uh, Plantinga's other minds argument, but it's like an argue. It's like the same argument, but for other minds. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> um. You're gonna to have to spell that out a tiny bit for me. Oh no! Well, it just um, his uh, grounds for evidence for um, we we believe in other minds without a lot of evidence for it, right? You can't like see it, and uh, but then <laughs> when you're talking about consciousness, it starts to mess with that idea of other minds, and so instead you're dropping it down to well, you believe in numbers. <laughs> Without this level of evidence, it's just, it's kind of, you know, kind yeah. of uh, turtles all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't so much trying to make it a point about evidence as a point about, like, insofar as it's sometimes people say things like, oh, like, how could you, like, sure, we understand why Descartes was a dualist back in, you know, the 17th century. But now, but, but now, given the advances of science, right, given everything we know about the world, how could anyone be a dualist today? Like if they're a dualist today, it must be because they are just scoffing at science, right? Like it's not a scientifically respectable position, right? Like, yeah, sure, we know, we understand why Plato and Descartes, but you today in, you know, the 20, in, in, in whatever year it is, uh, in 2023, you know, <laughs> dualist, um, how could that be? Right? Like you must just be um, ignoring science, right? You must be non-scientific. And so I want to bring in mathematics just as an example of something where we believe in something robustly. We don't think of ourselves as being non-scientific for that and for, for that belief. And so I don't see why the same kind of respect um, wouldn't be applicable in a domain where someone talks about the mind in a non-physical way. Like if we can talk about non-physical numbers, we should be able to, and not be scientifically unrespectable, then we should be able to talk about the, the dualist position. We should be able to talk about non-physical consciousness. And so it's not an argument. Like I'm not saying, I mean, sorry, it's not this kind of argument. I'm not saying the mind or consciousness is like a number, right? I'm not saying that they're the same thing. But I'm trying to soften, or no, let me put it in another way. I'm trying to erode the 
quick dismissal or the sort of anti-scientific whiff that sometimes seems to come along with dualism. And the analogy to mathematics is meant to help that. I mean, I don't think it's it's just mathematics. Um, I think when um, we're you know, in a court of law trying to decide on matters of fairness and justice, well, I don't think the fairness and justice are physical things. Like, where is the justice? You know, can we point to it? Um, so there are other examples too, but the mathematics one is one that I find particularly compelling in part because um, it just seems completely clear that we all believe in numbers. And it also just seems completely clear that they're not going to be given a, a physical explanation. Uh, Dr. Kind, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. If there was one thing that you could leave um, our audience to think about or maybe to uh, read further besides your rather excellent book with uh, Dr. Stoljar, uh, what would you leave for our audience? Oh, good questions. Um, well, I guess I'll make one comment and then I'll make one reading suggestion. Um, so the comment is, is just, I guess I didn't um, say anything about how I respond to um, some of Daniel Stoljar's positions. And I was talking a lot about what he says about ignorance. And my, so I'll just sketch out. And of course, this is, you know, in the book, if anyone wants right, to right. <laughs> read it. But I basically try to argue that um, it's not enough to, like, yes, of course, we're ignorant about all these things. But pointing to the fact that we're ignorant about things, we need some sense to, we, we, we need, in order for ignorance to be an adequate defense, we would need to have a good reason to think that the, the, the kinds of ignorance we have are going, are relevant, right? Like that it's not just ignorance in general, but that the ignorance is going to be relevant in a certain way. And of course there are all sorts of things that we, that we don't know, but just chanting, you know, ignorance all the time doesn't establish an alternate position. And also chanting ignorance, not that I think he's chanting ignorance, but in any case, um, uh, making claims about ignorance also doesn't show how things are going to turn out, right? So it doesn't really, like you need some other kinds of arguments. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. Like I agree that we are still ignorant of various things, but I don't think that that settles the matter against dualism. Uh, I don't see how it could. Um, in terms of things to read, um, I'm a big fan of David Chalmers book, The Conscious Mind. Parts of it get technical, but he has very helpfully, um, put asterisks in, uh, for the technical sections. And so, um, you can read the book and leave out the asterisked, asterisked sections. I don't think I did any better the second time, but anyway, the sections with <laughs> asterisks, you can leave those out. And so you can read it. Um, uh, uh, you can read it without having like a high degree of technical philosophical confidence. He also wrote a paper called, I think it's called the puzzle of conscious experience that was in scientific American. And that is super accessible. So those are a couple of places to start. Um, there's also a paper by Bree Gertler, um, who is, I think, at University of Virginia. Um, and her paper 
it's called something like in defense of mind body dualism. And I think that also does a nice job of making the case. She is not specifically focused just on consciousness. Um, but nonetheless, I think that's, uh, that's another helpful position. Um, there's also a fun, just for a fun thing that's not, that doesn't necessarily cut, uh, dualistic, uh, doesn't necessarily cut dualistic, but there's this, um, little short story by Terry, uh, Bisson. I'm not sure how you pronounce that called something like they're made of meat, or maybe it's just called meat. It's available online. And, um, I just think it, it's, it's very short and it's just fun. And it's something that sort of motivates this basic issue of like, wait, like they're conscious, but they're just made of meat, you know? Um, how can, how can meat be conscious? Um, it's just a fun fun little story. Awesome. Uh, great recommendations. Uh, it's been an honor having you on today. Thank you. Thanks. It's been fun talking to you.